Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. And how would you differentiate between a believer who's influenced by a demon in their soul versus an unbeliever who's influenced by a demon in their spirit man? How would you differentiate that? Um, well, evil spirits want to um, possess. They want to control. So for a non-believer, they really have no defense against uh, an incursion by literal powers of darkness into their spirit man. And this, by the way, is exactly why, not sort of why, precisely why, if you are talking with people who are caught up in, say, Wicca or any of black magic, witchcraft, etc., um, they have their own incantations and spells that they they use those things to try to control evil spirits, to boundary set them so they can't create those kinds of incursions and overtake them. And if you, if you, not that I recommend you people do this. In fact, let me reemphasize that. I do not recommend you do this, but if you were to go get books of spells from witches or people who practice this kind of thing, um, many of those books are laced with their, their, their whole directories of what amount to formulas and prayers that you pray to try to keep the evil spirits from taking possession of your spirit man, because even witches, as much as they want to draw on that power, even warlocks, you know, even people who are into the other dark arts, they, they know intrinsically that they're dealing with something very, very powerful. And it, it could actually spin out of control and turn against them. It's a little bit like the movie Alien, if you remember Alien and, you know, what the alien would do when it would come on people. Aww. It's kind of like that. And so, you know, we've delivered people who, who have had this going on. But when we do, we have to tell them immediately. And when I say immediately, I mean right at this moment. I'm not even taking five minutes for a potty break. We are going to lead you to faith in Christ because without him, you have no defense against them returning with seven more evil than themselves. Mm. That's what a non-believer has to deal with. And it's part of why you know, you, you, talk, you talk about that thing that makes me crazy. You talk about the prince of the power of the air. You talk about the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. I'm using all biblical terminology here. This is what we're up against with those that have given themselves over in this way. Mm. <clears throat> when we've got Christians, you know, you'll often hear people say, well, when I got saved, I was immediately set free of X, Y, or Z. Maybe it's cigarette smoking or porn or, you know, whatever. But okay, so I got free of this thing. And then they say, but there are still these other things that I'm still struggling with. That's because in that inbreaking, the Lord set them free of what had been a, an entanglement in the spirit level, but their soul, that's, that's part of the process of what we theologically call sanctification. And so we need to become more precise. Justification isn't sanctification. 
justification is the process of being justified. Uh, you know, as, as we often jokingly say, it is just as if I'd never sinned. I am born again by the blood of the Lamb. I am washed in the blood. I no longer have any condemnation in my life for those sins. That, that's the justification. But then we move from justification to sanctification, which is the process of being holy of having the Holy Spirit take possession of every part of us with the objective that we are no longer under the dominion of sin and its empowering agents, which can be evil spirits. They're not all evil spirits. Some of these are the appetites of the flesh. But when, it, when it's a thing, then, it's, then when deliverance is what you need, you've got to get rid of those evil spirits because they will glom on and they will drive people to a kind of obsessiveness that they can't, they just can't break away from. So if you think of people, I mean, I'm just thinking of many cases of folks that I've prayed with who have been set free. Maybe they have some sort of obsessive compulsive disorder. Maybe it's over germs. I mean, that would be a bad one to have right now in the season of COVID. <laughs> but, but it's a thing. You know, some people are really obsessive about germs. Some people have a volatile temper. And, you know, you're always kind of on eggshells around them because if you say anything, they just fly off a handle. What are you talking about? And it's like, whoa, you <laughs> might work with that person. You might live with that person. You might be married to that person, right? That might be your mom or your dad. And, you know, no matter how much counseling they do, they just, there's that hot button and they keep getting triggered. And, you know, they've, they've had prayer. They, they've confessed it. They, they see it's wrong in scripture and they even name it as such. Or, you know, another one that looks just like this, Many times, people who are bound over to sexual perversions of many kinds, not only pornography, but, you know, some of the things that we're now trumpeting as okay, you know, put some letters behind it, you know, even some of that stuff can have a demonic component. And when that demonic component is driven out, when people are set free, whom the Son of Man sets free is free indeed. But I think in many circles, we've taken that verse, whom the Son of Man sets free is free indeed, we have taken that to mean that when you are born again, you are automatically free. I call that the one and done paradigm. But I don't see that paradigm in scripture. What I see is once Jesus has liberated you, liberation, once, you, once Jesus has freed you from whatever that thing was that bound you and enslaved you, that you couldn't break away from no matter what you tried, once he set you free, buddy, you are free. That's what it's really talking about. And so, Interestingly and tellingly, if you go look in the writings of the church fathers, and in this case, they were all fathers. We, we, there are no very, very, very few uh, female writers in the early history of the church. By the time you start getting uh, the monastic movement, there are abbesses who begin to write. But, but most of the early church fathers, men with names like Arnobius and Lactantius and Eusebius, I mean, even the endings of their names in Latin tell you that these are men because those are all masculine endings to their names. These men, Jerome, I mean, you just go down the list, Ambrose, uh, Augustine, you know, these people, during the period of what were called the apologists, they didn't do apologetics the way we do apologetics today. The way we do apologetics today is, you know, we make a strong case rationally and intellectually for why the faith makes sense, why people should believe in Jesus. And, you know, praise God for men like Ravi Zacharias or um, Nabil Qureshi was a good friend of mine. And I, I prayed with him at some length that he would be healed before his ultimate and untimely death. 
Um, but you know, there are many people like this out there who do that kind of work and praise God for it because we need people to give a good, rational, cogent explanation for what we believe and why we believe it. But, and this is an important but, in the earliest church in the second century, so the 100s AD, in the third century, the 200s AD, even into the very early years of the fourth century when Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, for most of about, I mean, 300 years, Jesus was crucified, we think, in 33 AD, and Constantine issued the Edict of Toleration in 313 AD. So if I have the dates you know, correct, we know the 313. It's more the, the 33 that might, there might be a little wiggle in that one. But we're talking about 280 years. I mean, that's longer than the United States has been a country. So for that entire length of time, um, Christianity was an illegal religion. Sometimes they didn't enforce it all that vigorously. Other times they were very vigorous in enforcing it. But here's what happened. These men arose and they were called apologists. They were giving an, an apologia is the Greek word. They were trying to give a response or an answer for the hope that lay within them. And if you read the writings of these apologists, men like Justin Martyr would be one, Polycarp, uh, in their writings, it's, it's not the only thing they talk about, but they actually say, we Christians have something that you pagans don't have, you Roman pagans. Our Jesus is more powerful than your gods. And here's how you know, when we Christians come to town, we drive the evil spirits out of the people. And with this, they are healed of their diseases, of their mental illnesses, of other conditions of the soul that they cannot overcome. This is what we bring. Your gods are unable to do that because, in fact, your gods are themselves demons. And they're on good scriptural ground to say that. Psalm 106, 36, and 37 says all the gods of the, de of the nations are demons. So whether you're talking Jupiter, Hera, Zeus, Neptune, you can change their names, Roman or Greek, uh, could be Pluto, uh, but any of these gods, any of the gods of the nations are actually demonic entities who seek to arrogate the worship that should go to our father because they rebelled. They, they turned away from all that, and now they crave that that worship would come to them. All of these pagan societies were rooted in that. And so the church was carrying out a deliverance ministry for most of 300 years before it became legalized. And the number one leading edge set of issues that they used to bring the gospel with power for the conversion of a pagan world was healing and deliverance. Mm, fascinating. That's so... Wait a minute, it gets better. I got one more thing to say. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. After people would come to faith, because they'd been caught in the immorality of Rome, because they'd been caught in the drug culture of Rome. Yes, there was a drug culture. Because they'd been caught in the drunkenness of Rome. Because they had worshipped foreign gods in many different ways, whether by bringing sacrifices into temples or maybe engaging in sexual activity with a cult prostitute, a temple prostitute. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to church if you get to have sex in church, right? So all of this was part and parcel of the world of, of that time those people would get born again, but guess what? Now they're, now they're Christians, and you know what they did? They would generally make them what they called catechumens, or people who are learning the faith, and for about two years, they would instruct them in the key principles and doctrines of Christianity, and they would drive the demons out of those people, ultimately leading to a baptism that was generally delayed for about two years.
And so even the very activity, the very profiling, the, 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 mission, the mission activity of the ancient church during this period of time, they were driving demons out of the very people they believed to be Christians. Why? Because they had all this stuff left over in their lives from all of their former ways of life. Paul calls them acts which lead to death. And in many believers, they are still leading to death because they haven't been set free of those binding powers of darkness. John says this in 1 John 5, 17 or 19, we know the entire world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, it's being pushed back. The kingdom of God is advancing. But everybody who crosses from death to life has lived in the dimension of the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, with a dark ruler. Think of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings. And now they're coming over into the kingdom of light. This is language that Paul uses. And with this, they need to be made children of light so that anything that wasn't dealt with at conversion, we now deal with it through the, the pastoral office of deliverance through the sanctifying power of the Spirit, so that spirit, soul, and body are made holy, and we can live the victorious life that Jesus paid for us. Shoot. Preach. Ken, my goodness. I, I had questions like 12 subjects ago, and then now I just have more questions. Oh, God. Okay, I'm going to try and like... podcast parts three, four, five. <laughs> right, exactly. I'm going to have to have you come back, Ken. Um, okay, I'm going to try and simplify this for our, our, view, our listeners. Um, some of the questions I had in some of this. Oh, my gosh. Um, what, in your mind or your experience, what constitutes someone being... <laughs> what are you laughing about right now? I'm watching you formulate. I know, I'm like struggling right. What do you know? This reminds me of our phone conversations. I'm like, oh, this is familiar. Um, where do you go from being influenced by a demon to having a stronghold in your soul? What would you say is the the turning point, if you will? I, I know you, maybe you can't pinpoint it, but like, how would you contrast those two experiences? At the lower level, demons will, they will uh, hint at things. They will try to tempt you. Uh, they may as it were, inject thoughts into your head. Uh, but they don't have an overt control over you. They, they simply are enticing you and trying to distract you. Like more like, hey, maybe this, proposing things rather than you're actually being influenced. Yeah. And then the stronghold thing is, what when happened there? When there's a stronghold there, you actually find it very difficult to, say, put those thoughts out of your mind. Now, we're talking poles here. There's actually stuff in the middle here, but I'm just trying to define the boundary conditions. Totally. So um, when you've got a stronghold, a stronghold literally is, it's like a fortress or a castle or a tower, right? We use these terms. We see them in the Bible. We don't really fight wars this way anymore. So in on some level, the, the we have a, a rudimentary knowledge, but we haven't really thought very deeply about these things because... They're not part of our world. Mm. But if you were, say, living in Jerusalem or Istanbul or Rome or, you know, any ancient city, you knew what a stronghold was. It was the, you know, the highest part of the city because they would usually build a city on a hill, makes it harder to attack. And they would build a tower or maybe they'd have a set of walls inside the walls so that even if invaders broke through the outer walls, they'd have to go another layer and maybe yet another layer. 
And so a stronghold is a reinforced fighting position. Sometimes when I'm teaching on deliverance, some, some people like me to do it this way. It helps them frame it and understand it. Other times they don't like it so much. So it, it depends on the listener. Mm. But a reinforced fighting position, you might actually change the language from tower or fort to bunker. And so let's think about something that's a little nearer to our modern consciousness, although it's been 75 years since the Second World War ended. Even for a lot of people, if unless they're military historians or they've you know been in some of these places, they may have never seen anything like this. It, it, it's still a bit foreign to them, but I'm going to try and explain that. When, when the Allies landed in Normandy, northern France, trying to drive Hitler from power into, you know, effect regime change, as we now call it, at the, you know, closing months of the Second World War, the date of invasion was called D-Day, uh, June 6, 1944. And when the Allies came ashore, it was, uh, they had five landing beaches that were spread across the Normandy coast. It was a fairly big fighting front. But they didn't know where they were going to get ashore, where they might get pushed back into the sea by the Wehrmacht, the German army. And so they, were, they wanted to have multiple shots on goal, just in case. And, of course, the worst beach of all was at Omaha. And the U.S. lost about 2,000 men in one day at, at the Battle of Omaha Beach. If you've ever seen the movie Saving Private Ryan, that is a reenactment of what Omaha Beach was like. It was a bloodbath. There are reinforced fighting positions up on the cliffs. Elevation gives you a preferred position of fire. Um, they're not just using small arms like rifles. They're using 50 caliber machine guns, 40 millimeter anti-tank rounds. They're using 155 millimeter howitzers. I mean, these are the armaments that were there and they're all in these bunkers and in the Private Ryan movie, you know, they got to get off the beach, get off the beach. You're exposed. You're going to get killed. Get off the beach. They got to get past the barbed wire that the Nazis have put there. They got to get past the the Rommel's asparagus is what it was called. These welded girders that made it difficult to get past. And they have to get past that. And they get up against the seawall where they can't really be shot, but that's not a survivable position because you either got to go back out to sea or you got to go up. It's, it's a little bit of cover, but that's it for the moment. And in the scene with Private Ryan, you know, that Tom Hanks, he's, you know, he sees that bunker up on the hill and there's some kind of a big gun in there. We don't really know exactly what it is, but he takes a piece of chewing gum and he puts the mirror on his, on the end of his bayonet and he holds it up and he's trying to see because if he sticks his own head up, he's going to get shot. So he's able to see without exposing himself to fire and he works out a way, how are we going to destroy that bunker? And so they, you know, they work up to it and you've seen the movie or many of you have, if you haven't, maybe you will. <laughs> and so they go and they attack this bunker. That is a stronghold. What's inside that stronghold? German soldiers. They have names like Jürgen and Hans and Joachim or whatever. And so they blow the thing up. Now, once you blow up that stronghold, <laughs> let me ask you a question. Is everybody inside of it dead? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. They could be. You hope they are. Hopefully, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, if you're a Christian, you'd rather they not be. Hopefully, right. you get to take them captive and they, their right. life is spared. But right. in military parlance, you, you know, but the point is neutralize the objective. That's what a military person would say. And if it means killing people, it means killing people. If you can capture them, okay. So now you've got to advance on that broken bunker 
which has been shattered with naval gunfire, with explosives, with whatever. And you've got to figure out who's inside here, who's alive, who's dead. Uh, you know, we got to count the we got to count the dead if they're dead. We got to capture the living, and if anyone needs medical assistance now, we you know bring up our medics and we take care of them. This is how we do what we do. That's what we mean as a stronghold. So think of a stronghold as something that an evil spirit has built in your life. You are enslaved to pornography. And no matter what you do, you can't stay away from it. You're looking at it 7, 10, 14, 20 times a day. You're masturbating. And it's like, you know, you want to grab your own hand and stop it. But there's such a compulsion and a drive. And you're like, I don't know what to do. Or, you know, you explode in anger in your home. You're like, I don't want to do this to my family. I don't want to do this to my parents. I don't, I don't want to be that person. But you are. And no matter what you do, no matter what counseling you've done, no matter how much prayer you've received, it's still there. And if you're honest, you're living in defeat. Mm. That's what I mean by a bunker. And probably in that case, if you've got a bondage that you can't walk away from, you probably need that bunker blown up and you need the demons in it driven out. Probably. You need power applied to your life. You need power applied to your life. Mm. Here's what freedom looks like. Now, I was raised in a family where we were supposed to be teetotalers. You don't drink any alcohol. Scripturally, I don't think that really, I mean, it's not a bad idea, but, but I don't think you are required to be a teetotaler. And so as I grew into adulthood, I understood that, you know, if I want to have a beer or two with a pizza or, um, you know, if I'm having a burger and fries, sometimes I'll have a beer with that. Or if I go out to a nicer dinner, <laughs> maybe I have a glass of wine. I'm not talking about getting drunk here. I'm talking about a glass or two. Yeah. But that's it. <laughs> right. So if I want to do that, that's not a that's not a problem. And, you know, sometimes when I'm traveling, particularly in Europe or um, Australia, countries like this, part of their culture is they drink wine with dinner. And I mean, they won't be too offended if you don't drink wine with them, but they do look at you kind of weird. It's like, why do you want to drink wine with us? I mean, this is what we do. We're sharing bread. We're breaking bread together. We should we should all be drinking wine together not getting drunk just sharing the cup as part of our meal that's that's the way these people live so sometimes when i'm even on a ministry trip i never drink before i minister but if i'm done for the day and we're having a late dinner i might have a glass of wine with dinner or a beer with a pizza or something like that okay uh, hopefully i didn't just lose half my audience but <laughs> largely in the you know renewal stream i don't think you're going to stumble over this but some some church movements would all right but my wife and I, we don't really drink very much. I mean, again, if we go out to dinner, we might get a bottle of wine and we have a few bottles of wine on hand. Oftentimes people in countries like that will give me a bottle of wine as a gift when I'm, uh, when I'm speaking and they'll say, you know, thank you for what you've done and, you know, here you go. And so we have a few bottles of wine in our cabinet and now and then if we have company over, or we're making a nicer meal, we might open one at home. But I, I can tell you with a straight face, we go weeks at a time. And during COVID, I haven't been traveling much, literally for months at a time. We have gone with no alcohol consumption at all. Not because we're bound up about it and legalistic. It's just, that's just not what we do. We drink water. We drink maybe some other kind of juice or sparkling water or something like that. But we're just not heavy drinkers. I am not bound by alcohol. I could literally go the rest of my life and never drink another drop of alcohol and I'd be okay. That doesn't mean I don't enjoy a nice glass of wine or a good dark beer, you know, now and then, 
But if I had to lay it down, it wouldn't bother me. But there are people, if you told them you need to quit drinking, you've got a problem here, they'd be like, I can't, I can't do it. Because why? They're an alcoholic. They're bound by their alcohol. That has become a stronghold. So when it comes to liquor, I would say I am free. I don't have those compulsions and draws and bondages. Whereas somebody else may not be able to say that. Similarly with porn. I mean, I wouldn't even know. I mean, I, I would know how to go find a porn site, but I mean, I don't look at porn. I'm not even attracted to it. I don't have any draw to it. I don't look at it at all. You can look at my browser and it's not because I'm clearing it every day to hide my tracks. I just don't do it. It's just not a thing in my life. When some people, they're like, man, I, I just can't help myself. I mean, I'm just like, I don't want to do it. I don't think it's good. I feel guilty afterward. I feel shame, but oh my God, I'm totally caught. That person's in bondage. And if they, if they can't, get mastery over it, it is, it is very possible. I don't want to say even likely because I don't want to freak people out and, and suddenly I'm going to have 2,000 new emails in my inbox <laughs> when I get a private appointment with you for yeah. delivery. But, but in a situation like that, it is very possible that that person does have a demonic bondage and needs to be delivered so that they can go free. Mm. Now, Ken, let's say there's someone listening to you from some random part of America maybe their church isn't super up on everything you're talking about, but they're discovering like, Oh my gosh, I think there's, there are things in my life. I need power applied to what would you recommend they do? How do they seek out deliverance? Is that something they can apply to themselves or if they don't have people around them who are skilled or equipped or gifted in this area, what would you recommend for them? Well, they have, uh, their, their best choice would be to find a church that ministers in deliverance responsibly. I say responsibly because there's a lot of weird stuff that goes on in deliverance. I mean, I understand why a lot of pastors shy away from it. Mm. It's just bizarre things that go on. I could tell stories in that area too, but let's keep going to answer your question. Yeah. If you don't have one of those in your area, uh, your next best choice would probably be maybe come to one of my events. I don't want to just toot my own horn, but, but no, I, if that's know, the best solution you can do. It's rare for me to do an event where there isn't deliverance going okay. on. Okay. So find an event you're doing anywhere on anything you're talking on and deliverance will likely happen at the event. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I did an event in Atlanta, Georgia this weekend, just ended. So what are we on Friday right now? So it's yeah. like, you know, I came home five days ago. Um, they wanted me to talk about stand strong. That was the theme of our conference. And we talked about we didn't talk about deliverance. It wasn't, it wasn't anything on the table. It wasn't what I preached on. I was talking about standing strong. But we had two of the most epic deliverances I've seen in a while. Of course, I haven't seen many this year because I'm not out on the road as much. But epic, epic deliverances. The, the, the first night, there was a, a young woman there, and I was you know, moving through the room. The spirit was moving. People were getting healed. I was giving prophetic words. And I saw her, and I just looked at her, and I said, hi. And she, her face just changed and she began to cry and she goes, hi, like that. And she told me later that she had been praying, oh God, please don't let him look at me. Please don't let him come near me. I'm freaked out that he might call something out in me. I don't know what I'm going to do. And the power of God hit this woman and boom, down she went. Well, one of my team members started to pray with her. And later came to me and said, I, we're not getting this one done. There, there's something there, but I don't know what to do with it. I said, okay, we'll get her tomorrow. And so the next day, um, she came specifically seeking to be freed. This woman had a Wiccan spirit. And this Wiccan spirit had actually been passed to her. We could say imparted, to use language Christians might recognize. This Wiccan spirit had been imparted to her by her mother, who was a Wiccan. And as it happens, there's, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. 
her father was a preacher, a, a godly, devout man. He'd met her mother, and the mother had disguised the fact that she was a Wiccan. And so they end up falling in love and getting married. Well, as you might imagine, once it comes out that you've got a preacher married to a Wiccan, um, which is, you know, they say it's white witchcraft. I'm not sure it's all white witchcraft. Some of it's black witchcraft. But anyway, it's witchcraft. Once the preacher and the woman realize, you know, what's going on here, I think it was he realized it about her. I think she knew darn well what was going on. And I might even suggest, although I don't factually know this to be right, but it, the fact pattern works, probably she was a plant. You know, she was trying to bring down his ministry. And I've seen this happen in other places and times. Anyway, so the marriage blows up and he loses his pastorate because in his denomination, you couldn't be a divorced pastor, never mind that this woman is a witch. And so he now has a totally different life. He still preaches and leads people to Christ. And, you know, he, he does it anyway, but, um, but he's no longer, you know, reverend so-and-so. And the mom has gone off in a totally different direction, but she had imparted her Wiccan spirits, her gift to her daughter. And so when I sat down with her and talked with her a little bit, it was really obvious what it was. And to go back to my military metaphors, it was like, okay, range to target, 5,200 meters, target acquisition. All right, we're going to come azimuth, 20 degrees, fire. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I mean, this was an epic deliverance. This young woman got delivered and set free, and man, she knew she'd been set free. Her husband is there watching it and about eight of her friends, everybody's in tears. I'm crying, she's crying. And let me tell you, bro, this was not some quiet deliverance deal. This was loud, proud, coming out with shrieks and cries, but Jesus wins. And so that was, that was the first on deck. The next one was a woman about 10 years older than the first one. And she'd gone as a missionary. She'd been in India. She'd been in Pakistan. She'd been in Thailand. Some of it I knew from just a lot of experience. I knew kind of who the usual suspects were. So I knew kind of what I was looking for. Some of it I got because word of knowledge, God was giving me the names of these evil spirits. But we drove 13 demons out of this woman. And let me tell you, her life has been a freaking train wreck. I could go through all the ins and outs of it, but she had physical problems, she had mental problems, she had relational problems, I mean, all of it, and God came down and absolutely busted that bunker, and she got completely set free. The pastor and his wife are in tears. They're like, this is like our spiritual daughter. We've done everything we know how to do. We've counseled her for years. We've been there with when they lost a baby. We've walked her husband and her through the, all these difficulties. And I got a message from the pastor yesterday saying, you cannot believe the change in this woman because of what happened that night. We stayed until one o'clock in the morning and you drove those demons out of that woman. Wow. Like, you know, when can you come and teach our whole church how to do this? Wow. When deliverance is what you need. Nothing else will do. Wow. I, I just keep saying it because it doesn't sink in until you kind of get a word picture of what that can look like. Yeah. And I've seen people who are psychotic. I've seen people with um, terminal conditions. I've seen all kinds of stuff ministered to that resisted every other form of ministry. And when we, when we you know, change the nature of what we're doing and we deal with the enemy's strongholds, whom the Son of Man sets free, gets to go free and stay free indeed. Nice. I love it. Okay, a couple more questions real quick. And we got we to land this plane, um, at least for now. Hopefully we take off again. <laughs> but um, 
What would you say to people who are listening to this who maybe aren't the ones who are looking for ministry for themselves but want to be able to help contribute and serve in this way? Do you have any words of wisdom for them on this podcast? Just like, hey, here are some general things about going about bringing deliverance to people or here are some great resources or trainings or tools or whatever they can get a hold of to get trained in this. Yep. Um, well, I have a store on my internet website. And so the website address is www.orbisministries.org, O-R-B-I-S, orbisministries.org. Um, so when you go there, you can go to the, to the store and we have things classified by, you know, subject matter. And so if you specifically want to look for deliverance, you can do that. Uh, we have stuff on healing, prophetic ministry, inner healing. We, I mean, we have a lot of stuff in there. We've got like 150 titles and all of it is stuff that I've written and taught. All of this has been, back to my military metaphor, has been tested on the battlefields of the world. Nice. And found to work very, very well. Mm. Um, but if people want to learn about uh, deliverance, they can, uh, they can go there and buy that material. Um, we have it available as CDs, uh, DVDs and mp3s and mp4s so it just kind of depends on what they want to do in terms of how it comes to them if they want to get some more in-depth training i have a school called the orbis school of ministry and um, if they would like to learn more about orbis school of ministry it has its own website you can find it through my main website that i just named but if you want to go to the school website directly that is orbissm.com orbissm.com. So yes, there are two S's there. O-R-B-I-S-S-M.com. S-M obviously is for school of ministry. Yeah. Uh, and if you go to the Orbis School of Ministry, we have some free videos you can watch to get a sense of the kind of teaching we have. And then, um, and then if you want to sign up, you can. Now, right at this moment, we are completing a module of Healing 103. So it's third level healing material. And then uh, we're going to take a break in August. And then in September, we're going to start up with our prophetic training. And that will run until Christmas. And then next year, we're going to start having inner healing and deliverance. And I often tell people, you really want to get inner healing training alongside of deliverance training because the two aren't the same. They're definitely absolutely not the same. But they often do go hand in hand because of this matter of the soul that we've been talking about. And so um, we're going to have all of that launching next year and, uh, and signups for that will begin around Christmas, but you could get involved earlier and, you know, catch up with things that we've already taught, or you could hold off and sign up at that time. But I would encourage anybody who wants to get training to consider the school because I teach the lectures and then we have webinars uh, that I lead that are very interactive. We have it open for Q and a, we have people submit questions. I also take them live. We also have breakout groups that we call activation groups that are de designed with TAs that have trained with me, traveled with me, who kind of understand the philosophy with which we operate. Uh, everybody's in an activation group and you get the webinars. And then for everybody's in the school, we do a, an annual gathering where we, we model and train and teach in depth. And we sort of, you know, we, we really don't hold anything back. I, Jesus said, go train all the nations to do everything I've commanded you to do. And so I don't see any value in sort of holding back the choicest morsels because, well, you know, it might take away my franchise and I'm, I'm no longer going to be the, you know, the, the guy. So everything that the Lord has taught us or shown us, 
somewhere along the line, it may not be in one specific class, it may be in a different class because you can't say everything at, the, at once, but somewhere in all this, we're trying to impart everything. And I am myself finding that, I mean, I've been doing this for many, many years since I worked with John Wimber decades, but I've learned things along the way that even John didn't tell me. And initially I thought I was off the reservation and like not doing it the right way. And I went and talked to John's widow, Carol. She's remarried now, so her name's no longer Carol Wimber. But anyway, I went and talked to Carol and her new husband. And I said, you know, I really am feeling like I'm somehow misbehaving and all these new things God is showing me. And I tell her stories from the road and she's like, Ken, you're just operating at a level beyond where we were because, you know, we, we are supposed to grow in these things. You know, Bill Johnson likes to say our ceiling is their floor. Well, I'm standing on the ceiling of what was John Wimber and Someday someone will stand on the ceiling that was mine, my ceiling, and it'll be their floor. So we're trying to kind of build and advance all of this. And, and we have a growing army of people who are highly effective at healing, deliverance, inner healing, prophesying. And we actually have an integrated model that I teach. I'm writing a book on it. Uh, my first working draft, though, is over 650 pages. So I think it needs to get narrowed down a little bit. Uh, but, you know, this is all kind of the distilled learnings of many years and many teachings and all of that. And I'm, I'm attempting to work on that manuscript during this time of being off the road so that hopefully I can get it into the publisher and maybe it'll be published, you know, in the next few months. Nice. I love it. It's awesome. Okay. This one seems like a one-off question. I want to ask it before we end this episode. Um, I've encountered in several years of being a believer and in, in ministry, in different groups of people, certain individuals who, and we've kind of texted a little bit about this, but certain individuals who I think in certain contexts, when they're like listening to someone preach or like learning about scripture or the Bible or something, they all of a sudden get very sleepy, tired. They're, they can't pay attention. Their consciousness starts to drift and it's very difficult for them to like show up in that space. Um, and from my observation at this point, I'm pretty convinced this is a spiritual thing. Like there's, cause they don't, experience that in every lecture situation or every learning posture, right? It's like when certain things are being addressed or presented that this happens. Can you speak to that briefly real quick while we're here, just on in case people listening to this as well are like, wait, what the heck that happens to me? And then what does that mean? What can they do about that? Yeah. So a little knowledge can be a dangerous thing. And what I'm about to say qualifies as a little knowledge. Okay. And with that, I, I don't want to frighten um, our listeners but I also want to be forthright uh, about answering that question. So one of the ways, not the only way, a way that evil spirits can manifest is through sleepiness, yawning. And um, there are people who are under the influence of evil spirits in one way or another. They're demonized, but not possessed, even believers. And when they get around the presence of the Holy Spirit, whether in worship or, you know, anointed Bible teaching, uh, sometimes ministry settings, they seemingly just, it's like they have African sleeping sickness. They just sort of, <clears throat> and they go out. And I can remember many years ago when I was a much, much younger guy and I was working with John, I had a home group at, at John's church, the Anaheim Vineyard. And, uh, this, you know, this home group was reasonably well attended and there was, was hosted by this couple. And, uh, you know, we, at that time, all of us were in our twenties or early thirties, but, um, there was the, the husband of this couple, every single time the first chord would get struck. I mean, he'd be up and happy and talking, you know, during the pregame warmup when everyone's, you know, eating carrot sticks and drinking coffee or whatever <laughs> in those days, uh, 
he'd be fine. And as soon as the first chord would be struck with worship, he would start going. Oh, oh, I mean, big yawns, right? And, uh, and then the worship would kind of come in for a landing and that would all stop. And then maybe there'd be a prophetic word here or there. Or, you know, we do whatever we do. Someone would share something. Someone would share a scripture. And then it would be time for me to share from the word. And when I would start teaching, he would immediately start doing the same thing. And I don't think it's because I was that boring of a Bible teacher. I mean, right, we all totally. were all made, but I don't think that was it. <laughs> this was every week. <laughs> so anyway, um, we didn't know what we were looking at in those days. And so it just sort of remained as it was, I think is the way to say it. And, uh, Anyway, some months later, it turned out that this couple was getting a divorce. Now, they had four children, but they were getting divorced. And the wife said, that's it. I'm done. I'm leaving. And the reason they were getting divorced was because it turned out he had been consorting with prostitutes and was regularly doing this. And his wife had found out. And she's like, no, you know, you broke the covenant. And it's bad enough to have an affair. But I mean, you put me at risk by having sex with prostitutes. You could have brought a disease home to me. And so I'm just done. And she just left. And so, you know, Jesus says that, you know, people do leave for the cause of adultery or unfaithfulness. And so uh, out she goes. Well, that guy had a spirit of lust that we never diagnosed because in those days we were learning, we were a lot less tuned in and it isn't always a spirit of lust. It might be other things that manifest in similar ways. So not, in other words, multiple spirits of different types could manifest in similar ways. And so when I train people to do this, I train them to recognize the symptoms of manifestation, but even with that, you still got to get target acquisition on which spirits are we driving out here? So another one that will often manifest in that similar way is a spirit of false teaching or a spirit of false prophecy. These are not the same thing. Spirits of false teaching twist and pervert the scripture. Paul says it this way, 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, the spirit of God expressly states, in other words, literally says this, that in latter times, some will give heed to seducing spirits and to things taught by demons. Well, there it is. That's a spirit of false teaching. It literally twists and perverts the scripture and says things that are not so. You most commonly run into these things with, for example, people who have come out of, say, the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormonism, uh, some of the Christian cults that maybe are less common or not as well known. But anyway, when people have been in that, a lot of times when the spirit is there and when they're in a meeting, yeah, they will. They'll get sleepy. And it's because those evil spirits are manifesting that entered them through that false teaching. Similarly, if people have been under the, the tutelage or purview of a false prophet or even a false apostle, Paul speaks of false apostles too, uh, same kind of dynamic can happen. So what's happened is, you know, part of what empowers, part of what gives those people their charisma, their charm, their ability to project that persona um, is an evil spirit with which they have made some sort of compact and they are drawing power and influence from that spirit. A really good example, but totally different field of that which I just said would be if you've ever watched any of the speeches of Adolf Hitler, he is absolutely mesmerizing. He's unbelievably compelling. He's a fantastic orator. None of that is the same thing as saying I agree with anything he says. And so what Hitler would do is he would get up and he would literally put a spell over the entire crowd. Well, the spirit that was behind Hitler was Arianism and Nazism. Those aren't exactly the same, but they often occur in the same 
place. And I've cast those spirits out of people, particularly when I've been in Austria and Germany and places like that. Um, but that's, that's what that looks like. And so spirits of false teaching, false prophecy, false apostleship, they can actually project in that way. And people come under that influence. And as it were, it puts blinders on their eyes. It causes them to be led astray. And Paul, by the way, warns his own congregations of this exact effect in their lives. Yes, Paul the Apostle says to the Galatians and to the Colossians, I'm now paraphrasing it into modern American English, be careful lest you become demonized in your minds and your affections by coming under the influence of those who teach in these ways. And so that can be a problem for people who have not been delivered maybe from things that they might have once been into, or if even as a believer, they flirted around the edge with somebody like this. I remember I had a group of people that, I mean, I feel really weird even using the term, but, but they were disciples. They were followers. They were, you know, friends of mine and they were, they were really moving well in the things of the spirit. This is in another country, not the United States. And uh, a particular reasonably well-known false prophet had come to town and they were thinking about going and they'd asked me about it as a group. And I said, I would not go to that. I, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, but I think on this one, you'd do better to take a pass. And I was trying to be diplomatic and, and soft, not hard line. Well, 11 of them went and 11 out of 11 needed to be delivered of spirits of Gnosticism that had entered them when they sat in that individual's teaching and I mean, they were like three kinds of crazy, having emotional breakdowns, breaking out in hives. The women were suddenly having problems with their cycles. I mean, it just went on and on. So we had this deliverance session and got them all free and then life went back to normal. So these are real things that many people just don't even realize are out there because they don't read the Bible with the right set of eyes and they do not have a truly supernatural paradigm. Wow. Amazing. Helpful. So people who are listening who maybe are experiencing some of those symptoms of the, the falling asleep in these contexts, your recommendation to them as far as moving forward, that changing in their life, is it deliverance or is there other things they could be doing? Well, they're having that and nothing else is working. I mean, you know, you could have some sickness or something, but I don't just want to jump to the demon answer. Yeah. Obviously, I get there more quickly than some do because I've done this so often. I'm like, I know what this is. I've seen this before. If you don't have that experience, it, it's not quite as obvious initially, but it's the same basic idea. Um, and so if people are having problems with this and they suspect that they need deliverance, uh, again, I would say uh, if you come to some of my meetings, you could get delivered there. Uh, if you come to meetings led by people that are associates of mine, you could probably get delivered there. If you join my school, we don't just teach. We, we actually do have people getting ministry in their uh, activation groups. Um, more commonly that would be led by TAs that I've trained, but you could get deliverance there. Um, if you know somebody who's a credible deliverance minister and they are in a different stream or, you know, movement or whatever federation of churches than what I'm in, that's okay. I mean, deliverance is deliverance as long as people are doing it responsibly and according to the dictates of scripture, that, that might be another possibility. But there's one thing I do want to say, I know we're kind of short on time, but I, I think this is worth noting. There's a lot of people who want to say, well, go do self-deliverance. And, uh, you know, if you want to do self-deliverance, I actually have a kit available on my website. It'll cost you $79. You're going to get a little mirror that you look in the mirror. You're going to get a brown bag that you can barf into, and you're going to get a, a CD that you put into your CD player. And it's just me saying, come out, come out, 
come out. So you look in your own eyes and you get delivered. Well, I'm obviously <laughs> being tongue in cheek here. There is no such kit. I do not sell that item. Um, but listen, Ken, the stuff you're saying is so wild for some people that I don't know that everyone right then knew you were kidding. The That's why I clarified it. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, there is a lot of teaching out there. You can find it readily, uh, Christian books on the internet, whatever that you should self-deliver. And, and I'll just say this, when you've got somebody like this young woman, just this last weekend, I'm talking five days ago in Atlanta with her Wiccan spirit or the other woman that had picked up 13 demons in these countries where she'd served as a missionary. You know, let me tell you, these people had done everything they knew how to do. They'd proclaimed and confessed and all that. So I know people are saying, go do self-deliverance. But when you're dealing with a real demon, not a New York Times demon, Right. And when the issue is more profound than, than only forgiveness, and I'm a huge fan of deliverance. I believe it's a fundamental foundational building block for deliverance. But when you're dealing with what I'm talking about here, Wiccan spirits, spirits picked up in foreign lands, uh, when you're dealing with these people, these 11 people that I talked about who got Gnostic spirits, I mean, I guess on some level, yeah, they do need to forgive the false teacher or, you know, the whatever the mom that gave them the Wiccan spirit, there is a need for forgiveness, but really the main issue here is not forgiveness. The issue is power encounter. We got to drive out these spirits that are causing all of this to go on. Mm. And so it's a completely different paradigm beyond the forgiveness. If they need to forgive, believe me, I'm going to lead them in forgiveness and I'm going to make sure that we deal with that. I believe in forgiveness. I'm not in any way taking away from it, but for people that have been, I mean, I've prayed for girls that were in brothels in Bangkok. I've prayed for child soldiers that came out of Kanye's army in Kenya. I mean, I, I've dealt with stuff like this. And let me tell you, when you have that in your life, you can, you can try to self-deliver all you want, and it's just going to fall over. It is not going to work. It's just not. And the reason is because those people are in bondage. They're being held by a power greater than they can muster. and so. You know, just put this in your mind. If you've ever been to Disneyland or you've ever been to Disney World, there's a scene in the Pirates of the Caribbean near the end of the ride where there's these three men and they're in prison and it's a stone prison and it's got iron bars. And there's a dog there and the dog has a key ring that he's holding and he's wagging his tail. And one of the guys in the prison has a bone and all three of them have their hands out through the bars and the, the one guy is whistling and he's going, And he's trying to get the dog to come over and take the bone with the idea that he'll open his mouth to take the bone. And when he does, I'm going to grab that key ring so I can get the keys, open the jail cell and let myself out. When people are in bondage, they generally cannot let themselves out of the jail cell. Hmm. And um, I know people want to teach this, but here's the thing. Don't take my word for it. Go through your Bible and look up every instance of self-deliverance in the Bible, and you will find exactly zero. Jesus did not say, go and teach the nations to self-deliver. He said, go heal the sick and drive out their demons. In other words, it's a third-party experience. The host has a demon, and this apostle, prophet, evangelist, regular Christian comes along, preaches the gospel to them, breaks the back of the bunker, breaks the back of the demon, drives them out. This is a third-party engagement. It is not a self-deliverance engagement. There are no instances in the New Testament, none, from the words or actions of Jesus 
where self-deliverance is either modeled or taught. And so when we teach this in our modern world, I don't know where we're getting it. People say, well, you know, now we have so much authority, we can do it. And I'm like, well, then why are we having the conversation about the bondage that you're in and how you can't get free? If it's that effective, we wouldn't need this conversation. And the reason is the paradigm itself doesn't fit the biblical paradigm. We've got to get back to biblicism. The reformers said it best, and I mean the reformers of 500 years ago, Luther, Calvin, and all the rest of them. They said the Bible is our sole rule of both faith, i.e. what we believe, and practice, i.e. how we practice it. And nowhere in the New Testament do we see any examples, not a single one, of self-deliverance. Deliverance is something where we confess our whatever it is, one to another, we pray for each other with the objective that we will be healed, and breakthrough comes. And, and I'm in the process of, you know, everywhere I go, I'm on a lot of podcasts, TV shows, whatever. I do conferences. I do my own podcasts. Um, I have my material in my store. I've got my school. I'm trying to train people so that this understanding can be spread abroad widely across denominations, across movements, across particular emphases. I don't care if you're Bethel. I don't care if you're, uh, you know, catch the fire. I don't care if you're Methodist or Episcopalian. I don't care if you're Lutheran or Catholic. I don't care if you're Eastern Orthodox or Nazarene. What I know is Jesus is your savior and he wants you free. And this is available for anybody who wants it, but we can't make it according to our dictates. We make it according to his. Nice. I love it. It's awesome. So last question on this stuff, your website, if people want to find out where you're doing an event or people that are trained by you doing an event, is there a directory they should be able to get a hold of or how do they find these events? Uh, well, we have them posted at my website, okay. which is www.orbisministries.org. Um, they can also write in to us info at orbisministries.org. And, uh, you know, we'll answer questions that people have. We don't always do it immediately because sometimes we get so many, there's a backlog, but questions get answered. Um, if people are in particular locales and they would like a referral to the extent that we have one to give, we're happy to make, give people referrals to people that we know and trust. And so that becomes another avenue for pursuing it. And then I have a Facebook group, uh, which we can put people into it's it's a hidden group so you've got to be a friend of someone in the group um i can be friended at ken.fish.184 on facebook don't do it using google you want to use the facebook search bar ken.fish.184 i'm wearing a black shirt um the other alternative is you can go to the kingdom excuse me the orbis ministries public page you can like and follow us at the orbis ministries public page and uh, that's at Orbis Ministries CA for California. Perfect. Super helpful. Thank you, Ken. Lots of ways to connect. Yeah, I love it. That's great. Okay, now last thing. I know we talked about this at the last episode, but I want to give you the opportunity here too. This podcast is called Confessions of a Reformer. Is there a confession? I know you have many. Is there a confession you'd like to share about even just in the context you're in where you're just like, yeah, maybe I'm not like speaking authoritative, authoritatively about this thing, but I want to confess like this is here or I, I'm looking at this or whatever. Is there anything like that you'd want to throw in at this point? Um, well, I'm going to move off of deliverance for a moment. Great, to go for it. Healing. But yeah. as I've already indicated, sometimes to get healing, you need deliverance. Mm -hmm. You know, we see amazing things happen. I've seen everything healed that, that I can think of literally. Um, but some of it I see healed more frequently than other things. I mean, some diseases, 
I won't give a laundry list or it'll make our phones busy and our email box busy, but there are some things that I can pretty well expect that when I pray for them, something like nine out of 10 times, we're going to get a complete healing first run. Other things, it's not, we're near that. And one of those things that I'm really frustrated with this year is Lyme's disease or sometimes just called Lyme disease. Um, we see people get healed of it, but our heal rate is, I don't know, maybe if we're having a good day, it's 20%, one in five. But oftentimes it's not that good. And um, every year I go to the Lord and I tell him, Lord, I want to know what the key to healing this is. And uh, year by year, the Lord will give me the answer. Sometimes earlier in the year, sometimes later in the year. Um, we've cleared a lot of things in years past by doing this. This year, my list, my wish list with Jesus includes Lyme disease, because I know there's a way to, to absolutely take dominion over this thing so that people who are afflicted with pain, uh, foggy brain, they just can't get, they just can't get past it. That's not one where I feel that we have an acceptable uh, rate of success yet. And so the confession of this reformer on this specific one is I want, or I am bothering the Lord this year for his solution to Lyme disease, where we can reliably pray for people and see very high rates of success first time through. Love it. Thank you for sharing that. That's fascinating. And oh man, Ken, I'm so grateful you came on. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing. I am going to be knocking on the door. I would like to have episodes three and four and five, having let's you come back it. and share. Yeah, let's do it. I'm I love in. it. I love it. That's awesome. Ken, I have such a value for the gift on your life, for the many ways that you've like mastered what you're doing and bringing it to the church. It's so important and so needed. And I love the accuracy and the conviction and the just bringing it straight. It's so refreshing and helpful. And I'm super grateful for who you are in the world and what you're doing. And thank you for coming here. We will have you back hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, you guys have heard where you can access all the things with Ken. So feel free to rewind and go back there to get that stuff. And please plug into what he's doing. Um, I've only heard amazing things about what Ken is doing and highly recommended. Everything I've experienced from him, I've just been very impressed. So just super grateful for that, Ken. Thank you for being with us. And you guys remember to like, comment, subscribe. Uh, give us a, a rating, a review or whatever. Um, thanks for joining us on this. and We'll see you next time. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.